0: All right. Let's get started. Welcome back to Sensible Medicine Podcast. I'm joined. This must be week 20 or something. And you know the you know the characters <laughs> here. We've got Adam. We've got John. It's going to be a good discussion. We have several topics to talk about. How do we pick medical students? We have to talk about a new paper that came out on Entresto. We talk about some hemophilia doctors and prior authorization. So let's get into it. John, things kicked off this week. I saw, once again, my favorite drug, Secubitrol Valsartan. It's in the news again. Um, what's going on? What's this latest paper and and why is everyone talking about it?
1: Well, it just came out. I think may uh, uh today. I mean, today it was published today and I think it was presented at a heart failure meeting. So, this is another uh randomized trial with with sacubitril valsartan and I'm allergic to using brand names, so I won't call it the big E, but sacubitril valsartan 466 patients with heart failure and um and and randomized. This is the key, right? So Secubitrol valsartan against valsartan, not against an allopril. And finally um,
0: they got that right.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, they've done it before. And and, and here's the deal: ready? a fifteen percent reduction of the primary endpoint. 15% uh, hazard to 0.73 to 0.999 mm-hmm. with a p-value of 0.049. Uh-huh. And, and, and so it's a positive, it's a
0: positive. Wait, and trial. tell us the, pr- and tell us what the primary endpoint is. Well, yeah, I was,
1: uh, was going to hold that out, but you're so smart. <laughs> you wanted to know the primary endpoint, the primary endpoint. You probably think it's mortality or yeah, hospitalization or CV death. Nope. The primary endpoint is BNP, NT pro BNP, a biomarker. Oh
0: boy. Oh boy. Yeah. So my favorite, another heart failure trial with a BNP endpoint. Great. Wonderful. But wait,
1: but wait, okay. So that's only, that's only part of the story. So the story is that the trial comes out and it, the primary endpoint is positive. However, um, there's more hypotension, um, Uh, there's more hypotension in the saccubitral valve sartan group. And here the hazard is 1.73, 1.73. So 73% uh, more hypotension. um, And that was, you know, significant. Uh, The confidence intervals were significant. Okay. So that's chapter two, chapter three of this story. Okay. I didn't even know chapter three until this is why doctors have to be on Twitter because Bogdan Inaki, who's just an amazing sleuth when it comes to evidence appraisal, tweets out that um, now in a higher impact journal, uh, very you know the authors, the heart failure heart failure specialists are now meta analyzing this new trial Paraglide heart failure with Paragon heart failure. Paragon heart failure wasn't significant, um, but Paraglide was significant. Or Paraglide was significant, and when they put it together. Guess what happens? It barely meets significance in the uh, uh, primary endpoint of heart failure hospitalizations and CV death. So now,
0: Remind me, para- paradigm is reduced ejection fraction. Paradigm is pa- Paragon reduced- is preserved ejection fraction. Paragon HF was, yeah.
1: was, was sacubitril valsartan versus valsartan in half-pef. Heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And the primary endpoint of heart failure hospitalizations and CV death was not positive. Um, but it was almost positive, but it wasn't positive. And then they did a subgroup analysis and they found that um, in women and, and patients with a little bit reduced ejection fraction, not not totally uh, uh, high ejection fraction, mildly reduced, quote, quote unquote, mildly reduced, there was a little signal, signal of benefit and FDA approved it, of course. And uh, my partner just texted me and said that we now have a heart failure um, a pathway pathway in our shop that, uh, patients with heart failure of any type are getting, uh, put on, we're getting put on, uh, getting put on, um, uh, many heart failure drugs, but anyways, it's this, I think the, the teaching point is that a big trial at a heart failure meeting is using an endpoint of NT pro BNP, like right. a biomarker, a right. uh, surrogate marker. Number two, the, even though the primary endpoint's positive, significant side effect is much higher in that group. And then the third thing is simultaneous with that comes a combined analysis of um, this Hmm. positive trial this other trial.
0: And then the fourth point is that if it's P of 0.051, everyone always says that the P value is, you know, it's not a dichotomous cutoff and it could still be meaningful. And, and the author should be very careful how they word it. But if it's 0.0499, they're like, yay. They pop the champagne they're you know, so happy. And so I'm, once again, we're interpreting those perfectly consistently.
1: Yeah. You know, and, and, um, I, it just—I think what happened. I think what happened is when they take the patients from this new trial, Paraglide, um, and they add a few more patients to Paragon, and what happens is the hazard ratio is about the same, but the confidence intervals just get a little tighter. Right, which just—they just, right. add like a—they add like I don't know, eight hundred patients right. or, or four hundred sixty-six patients to, to the to the mix, and it gets a little, it gets a little tighter, and. But the overall effect is probably probably not any any different. But yeah, it, you know it this is pretty a big, sketchy. This is a big deal because heart failure with preserved ejection fraction is a much larger population than heart failure with preserved with with reduced ejection fraction, and the heart failure with preserved ejection fraction is also a very diverse group of all kinds of different patients and. So it's a huge market share uh, for the makers of the drug.
0: What do you think, Adam? You love uh, goal-directed therapy. What do you think about this? Absolutely my favorite.
2: Um, This is, like, I want to ask you, you know, what do we do about this? Because, you know, this could be a metaphor for so many other situations, right? We have, you know, these new expensive drugs that, I don't know, maybe a little bit better than what we have if we're being really generous. Um, But I'm skeptical even of that, right? Because for everything you've said, boy, looks to be about the same. And we know, we know, we know that it's being tested in a population that will never reproduce in the real world, right? Um, So at these levels, this is not what we're going to see. But instantaneously, right, it ends up into guidelines and we're desperately trying to throw you know, four different GDMT drugs at people. And I just think like deep within me, I don't think this is helping people, right? Um, I think it's helping the, you know, the stock owners of the companies that are making these drugs, but I don't think it's really helping the patients. But this just happens over and over again. And it just feels like we need some group who sort of says, look, we're looking out for both healthcare spending and patient well-being." and we need to take a strong stand against this and in this country we don't have that right
1: who does it now but but here here's here's the other here's the tension i see yeah okay there are patients there are patients with mildly reduced ejection fraction let's say 40% and 45% they wouldn't be they wouldn't be in the heart uh, category but they also have a really good blood pressure or, or even hypertension And there are patients who probably would benefit from the, you know, the stronger Sacubitril Valsartan. And so as a physician, as a physician, you'd like to have that ability to use that drug. So you want to have it on the shelf, but then having it on the shelf also means having it in guidelines, having it in um, uh, quality measures, uh, having the marketing pressures to use it and, and to use it in the the elderly patient with multimorbidity who is going to have a, a, a low blood pressure. And so the tension I see between regulatory approval and like doctors using the drug wisely, I mean, that to me, uh, you know, I, I, hear my, I hear my inner Hayek saying, you know, we shouldn't have that much regulation. We should just have smarter doctors using things more wisely.
0: Well, you know, that's an interesting tension. I guess I think it applies to some drugs out there. But this drug, I've never been persuaded on this drug. You know me. It's a very unusual drug. And a few things I always want to point out. One, every drug that works in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction also works post myocardial infarction. Except except for this one. Except for this one. Actually, in Paradise MI, it's a negative study. Okay, every drug in heart failure was tested usually against, uh, you know, proper control arm. But as we all know, paradigms problems. You know, half dose enalapril versus max dose valsartan, adding the succubitril to it, the double drug run in period, all these things we've talked about on this show before. Um, people can listen to all my rants on this. Then we have, you know, proBNP. I don't know what that means. Parag- uh, P- Paragon uh, is negative in my opinion. I mean, it is in fact negative. It was negative. And you can, if you allow the manufacturer control of who does the meta-analysis, of course, they're going to find a way to tip it over. Now, one of the things this was called, you know, to, I mean, to both your points, what, what's my solution is, I guess my solution is, in my mind, regulatory approval means that somebody has proven under some circumstances, this can improve an outcome people care about. So somebody's proven that in some population, it's going to improve something we care about living longer, living better, something like that. I personally never thought this drug clear that bar. You know me. But then the next step is how widely do you incorporate it in guidelines? And I agree with Adam that guidelines shouldn't just be about the best option. It should be about the most cost-effective option. Um, You know, uh, to your point about who can tolerate more blood pressure, I bet most people— in the world are not taking the dose of Valsartan the control arm of this trial took, which is a super hefty dose. And so if you're taking all that Valsartan and you still have high blood pressure, okay, maybe then you, but I doubt it. Um, uh, But to the point about, you know, who controls the cost, I guess nobody. And that's why we're at 20% 20 GDP on healthcare and we're going to sink. I don't know. That's the problem. And once it's open, you know, the ACC can't be responsible. They're not, uh, you know, they're conflicted.
1: It, it, sure. it's a real it's a real problem uh an ICU doctor on Twitter had a really good comment and his his comment was if i if i want to lower the bnp in a patient in the hospital with heart failure i just give them diuretics <laughs> and right. so i you know I, I, I really I, I, I would
2: I, I would say that another approach is to just not recheck the BNP, You're right? Which usually doesn't matter for figuring out how the patient's doing and when they should leave the hospital. It's like following daily
1: lactates, right?
0: And that's been studied in randomized fashion, hasn't it? A daily BNP did not improve outcomes. I feel like I, that's an old study.
1: Yeah, but I mean, I think I really think um, it comes up a it comes up a lot in electrophysiology with devices and and. Um, it just you want to have something available, but um, as soon as it gets available, it gets it gets enthusiasm. Well,
0: this is this is what the cardio, the oncologists love to say. We want options. But I guess my question is, honestly, if a product has never shown under any circumstances it can benefit somebody, what does it even mean to have that as an option? I mean, let's just take oncology. It's even worse than your field. You know, we're approving, you know, at least a third of drugs without a control arm at all. Just one art. We just run it and see what happens. You know, then we approve the drug product. People celebrate these. There are more options, but nobody knows how to prescribe it. There's no, no doctor smart enough to know how to prescribe it. You know? I, it's
2: it's, it's I, I mean, obviously I am very much, um, you know, on your side, right. As far as saying, you know, we don't need drugs that don't help anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we call far too many trials positive when they're really not positive. Um, but you know, when John talked about that, I, I really do, I really do feel for it, and I think it's because it is hard to show that drugs are effective, right? Um, and there's a lot to this drug, which I can see that in a very, very, very small group of patients, right? Who you've worked your way through lots of other things, that maybe this has a role. Um, but the fact that I see this as like, oh boy, everybody with hardship failure should be on this drug makes me crazy. Um, but it is true. you know, in our in our kind of guideline driven practice these days, where does that happen? You have an algorithm and it comes in, you know, in the fine print at the very bottom. Oh God, I'm not answering any questions today. I'm just no. But confused. I mean,
0: I think it's a good good point, and it ties into the the second topic, which I'll introduce that I wanted to quiz you all on. You know, hemophilia is, to me, a great example of a disease that was, you know, genetic disease for millions of, I don't know how long it's been around, hundreds of thousands of years of human civilization. It's been an, you know, incurable disease. There's nothing you could even do to treat people. And then finally, we invent the factor replacement products. We figured out how the, you know, hemophilia, what it is it, where, you know, where the genetic locus is, how do we can give you factor. And we have a recent paper out this week about conflicts of interest among the hemophilia doctors. Okay, you'll like this. So of course we have the factor, the factors priced, I think the average hemophilia patient is $280,000 per year of drug. Really? I mean, yeah. It's literally the kind of disease that were it not for insurance would you know, you couldn't even afford the products, right? It's it's only because of the graces of insurance and not having, you know, all those sort of, you know, throw you off if you're pre-existing conditions, etc. That we have the product. The product works i mean there's no but there's no doubt about it you got bleeding and it like you know fixes the literally fixing the deficit but here's what i think is i always thought was interesting about hemophilia they have all these complicated guidelines and they always say you need to get the level above x if it's major bleeding and above y if it's minor bleeding and if it's prevent prophylaxis has to be given this often and all of that dosing they don't got evidence for that part like they have a drug they have a product that works really well it's the product but then we give a ton of it, and we keep you elevated for so long and it feels to many of us like you're really using a lot of that product. It's very expensive, by the way. So enter our new paper a few years ago. A faculty member told me he's like, "You got to look into hemophilia because you know they've got summer camps, they've got college scholarships they've got like they're handing out money to the doctors. I mean these are for the patients too I've never heard of the company's having a summer camp for the patients with the disease. I mean, that's really something, you know. Um, And then we investigated the hemophilia directors who run the centers where they decide on the policies. And as, you know, surprise, surprise, they have like massive financial payments from these companies. Uh, It still is only half of 1% of revenue, but it's a lot of money. It's like a lot of people making, I think 20% made over $10,000 a year in consulting payments. That's among all hemophilia doctors, not even the directors but it'll even be higher. So I guess it's kind of linked to your thing, you know, John and Adam. The question is, in a world where they didn't have those payments, I would imagine hemophilia doctors would have said, hey, listen, we have all these thresholds. We're raising that factor above. Maybe we should do a study of the high threshold versus a little lower thresholds. So we can save some of this product. But in a world with this incentive, nobody runs those studies. We have no data to guide us, you know, just sort of the pathophysiology.
1: Why can't you do those studies?
0: Well, you see, there's a lot of hemophilia doctors who don't want to do it. That's the biggest barrier I see. I wonder why they don't want to do it. They like to err on the side of giving given a lot of that factor. I, I and 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 the comp and and the other barrier is the company may need to sponsor it, et cetera, and so they don't want to do it either. But I'm surprised governments don't do it or insurers don't do it.
2: And, and you know, we've talked in the past about right that patients. Have no skin in the game, right? And you can imagine the demand. Obviously, we're not going to ask people to pay two hundred eighty thousand dollars a year for their disease, right. but you can imagine that if there was some pressure on patients, hopefully, some sliding scale pressure on patients who would be then demanding, "Boy, can I use you know less of this to save money? You know, what's the right answer here?" But in our system, we have none of that.
1: And it's possible and, and that go ahead. Then yeah. I just just teach teach me teach me a little bit about. I mean, are they taking a are they taking a baseline level of this factor, or some, only when they only some, when they get into a problem?
0: Some people who have very severe hemophilia use it prophylactically, and then the logic is that if you didn't, you'll have uh, continual bleeding into the joints and have joint damage, et cetera. And so there are these long term sequelae of hemophilia that they try to avert. But for many people, it's the sort of thing that you take in and around a bleeding episode around surgery. And then we have these thresholds of like how high to get the factor level and how many days to sustain it at that level and how much product to give. And those are very generous for giving the product out. That's yeah, I,
1: I, about a year or two ago, I think I operated on someone with hemophilia and the, and the hematologist just told me, gave me the formula for how much factor to give and and how long and I, I, I actually, I actually just took it as gospel. I, I didn't even think, you know, I wonder where what empirical data that comes from.
0: Yeah, I mean, it has a rationale like everything, but you know, you could contrast it with like an, you know, A1C. We have randomized trials of all these different targets. It's a, it's just another thing in medicine that you want to get above a target, but that target is picked is somebody invented. There's so much of medicine is getting something above a target or below a target. That's half our games are these target games from hematocrits above a target platelets the, we have all these targets. These targets are generally, you know, not well explored. This is a unique target because to keep it above this target it costs a lot of money. <laughs> a lot of money. That's what I find interesting about this target.
1: Well, you know, um uh what's interesting I is uh, I I just sort of I won't change the topic of conflict okay. but I just got back from the Heart Rhythm Society meeting just today. I flew back today, and it's, it's interesting, speaking of conflict. So at the Heart Rhythm meeting, the, the three things that had the rooms busting out were, uh, one, uh, you're going to love this. One is people who have vasovagal syncope, who have these pauses, these 20-year-olds who have these long pauses, now people are excited about going in and burning areas of the atrium that uh, where the ganglionic plexi are and doing uh, cardio neural ablation and there's and there's a bunch of very enthusiastic people about it and and, uh, uh, and there's absolutely no evidence so that's number one um, number number two is uh, the thing that I'm excited about this 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 bundle branch pacing or conduction system pacing and trying to uh, do that, trying to replace biventricular devices, which is a huge market. And again, we only have non-randomized comparisons. And what's what's interesting about that is the companies are not for it because it could decrease the amount of uh, expensive devices. And and again, there's no data. And the third thing is this new way to destroy uh, cardiac tissue called pulse field ablation. And again, uh, uh, it's electrical uh, uh, um, uh, electrical energy instead of RF energy or, or freezing energy. And again, absolutely no randomized control tri- trials, but there's all this enthusiasm. So the three things at our meeting that people are most excited about, there's zero empirical uh, uh, randomized data.
0: Well, it goes to tell you that but um, but
1: they all make sense right so course, pulse, yeah. pulse field ablation electrical ablation is supposed to be better because it's cardio selective doesn't hit the phrenic nerve doesn't hit the esophagus so it's it's plausible and left bundle pacing is is also plausible because it narrows the QRS and synchronizes the heart and then um a cardio ablation they have case reports of people who get better but of course they have no Random, no sham control studies, so they have no nobody who who goes in and, and gets a sham control.
0: That 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 could only hurt their prospects. Well, I mean, I guess we're raising this tension, but this is the tension, and it's going to pair with the next topic of like, you know, prior authorization, which is also something that doctors are lamenting. But you know, there's a reason why the U.S. spends twenty percent of GDP on healthcare. Switzerland is in second. You know, I think Switzerland is behind us, and our life expectancy is down there with Costa Rica. I think even Costa Rica may have edged us out. And it's because of this. It's that like, yes, they are plausible. And maybe one in a hundred of these will be really remarkable and help a lot of people. Maybe 99 out of a hundred will really not help anybody, but probably 40 out of a hundred are gonna be approved or used or something like that, you know? And so we're just gonna be paying for all this stuff. And, you know, there's just too few John Mandrolas to be there. As far as I know, there's only one of you, but there's too few rhythm doctors. Adam and I aren't rhythm doctors. We're not going to the Heart Rhythm Society. Thank God, I didn't want to give up my weekend to that. But, okay, um, there's not there's too few pushbacks. So, you know, we're going to keep losing. I don't know where we're headed as a country. Um,
1: well, again, there's tension, right? Because there's the tension because on the one hand, you need innovators. You need people moving the field forward. And, and clearly, our procedures are better now than they were 10 to 20 years ago. But on the other hand, uh, the other tension is that these things just these things just get established and go crazy and cost us a lot of money. And I'm totally in agreement with your philosophy is that it's cost effective to study things earlier than, than later. But the thing with the conduction system pacing, and I may have mentioned this before, but it's so interesting because most of our science is funded by industry, but this would never be funded by industry. And they've actually not funded it because it, if it was successful, it would reduce the number of expensive units they sell. So nice. there are going to be trials. There's a, there's a, uh, some, I mean, some, but really, you know,
0: they're going to find a way because remember, uh, government he... is going to
1: fund a trial Okay. and and we had to get money from government to fund it. And we're excited about this trial and it's it, but it's going to be five years in the making, uh, before. And we've been doing this kind of pace pacing for, for years without any evidence, because we've never had a funding source.
0: And if I were to understand correctly, the difference is in BIV pacing, you put one at the tip of the left atria through the coronary sinus, and you put one at the RV, and now you want to pace the Hiss bundle directly so it conducts through the pathway, so you don't have to- Right, right,
1: right. So in, in BIV pacing, you're putting one out out really in the left ventricle, out the end of the coronary sinus, and one in the RV, and you have a you have a three-lead, uh, uh, a, a three a device with three leads up in the, a chest, and it's kind of an expensive device, a CRT device, but it, but you remember your cardiac anatomy, if you pace the, the, well, we used to pace the hiss, but now we pace a little lower in the, in the left bundle area and it, it accomplishes the same thing. And with one lead uh, you, you do the same thing that two leads do. So and why can't so, they make
0: money from this? Why can't they make a hiss bundle pacer, a new one shiny? No, you know? because,
1: because yeah. it, it, it's a, it's an old fashioned dual chamber pacer.
0: I see. And the Ooh, lead has been out, the lead hurt.
1: that we use has been out for 20 years. It's an old lead. And so Mm, it's really elegant because we're using, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a real conundrum. But if
0: I were at the company, the first thing I'd do is I'd make a ripoff of what your old way and charge a ton for it. You remember we, for a (laughs) long time, people thought about fecal transplant for C. difficile. It was, it's been talked about since the sixties. I did a review of it when I was a resident and finally they found a way to make money from it because you would think that's a procedure you can't make money from. You're literally transplanting shit. But what they did was, a company has a proprietary gel cap system that they have gotten through FDA, and so you can charge a lot for it. So if there's a will, there's a way, John. There's a way to turn that into a very lucrative product.
1: It's interesting. Uh, the, it's interesting this tension because okay, uh, so know, then industry is no. now helping, right? So now they're they are helping, and they finally it's really enough physicians got interested in it that they're finally making us some sheets that make it easier to do this, and um, and and but it took a long time. A long time.
0: Okay, so we live in this world where we're just spending all this money. And sure, I'll give you credit. There's some real innovation, a few and far between, I think. But okay, real innovation. And then the insurance company comes along and it says, my God, this is crazy. Our premiums are going to go up 20% next year. If we don't find a way to cut costs, we got to cut them. And so then they start to do things like that nobody likes. Prior authorization, believe me. I hate it as much as anyone else because I've been on that phone with some nitwit and I'm explaining and I'm like, look, man, I can't teach you medicine to tell you why I'm right. You just know so little. <laughs> okay, so we've all been there. But okay, but what, is the com- what, are, what are they to do? What is the, co- you know, doctors want, they want to be able to have all this technology and nobody say no. That's what they want. That's what they say on Twitter. So how is that sustainable? Adam, defend these doctors have you had to do prior auth you get to do it in your line of work i'm curious A- MRIs? are you kidding yeah
2: i'm like the king of prior authorization <laughs> they're all over me because i'm the person who refers to you people who spend all the money um yeah i listen i complain about prior authorization and i've said this on the show before but i understand it um and i think we wouldn't deal with prior authorization if we as physicians were better and smarter and thought more about this um And, you know, I have to deal with it as much as anybody because this is just going through, you know, whatever their artificial intelligence tells them, oh, we got to call this guy on this. Um, I got to say, I mean, I never have trouble getting stuff through because I'm actually probably an underutilizer of expensive stuff. Mm. Um, But also because I think you know, insurance companies really don't fight that hard, right? That if you jump through the hoop, they're generally going to approve things right. for you because it looks so bad. It's just that a lot of people actually, I think, recognize that oh, this is stupid. I don't need drug Q when I could use drug A, so I'll just save myself the time and give the patient a different drug.
0: And I, I think that's um, the real purpose of it. It's to change your behavior rather than say no. Absolutely. Right?
2: yeah, Absolutely. And I, I, I don't want to harp on the same thing. I, I'll tell you where my where my skin in the game argument for patients comes from today, because I'm gonna sound like some absolute wacko right winger on this. Um, I've spent the last two weeks on the inpatient general medicine service. And there've been so many discussions that we've had with patients um, where I've been struck with the fact that there's no cost on the patient side really takes out a whole part of the decision. Um, So a lot of end of life discussions where it's clear that the patient's suffering, where it's clear that life should end. um, And, you know, the family's having a difficult time, you know, giving up, right? Pulling back, um, um, going to hospice earlier, going to comfort care earlier. Um, And I keep thinking that, boy, you know, if this family had to pay X, right? they'd be thinking about this differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, listen, wow. we don't want some wow. set fee that rich people can have their life go on for another month and poor people have to just end it. Um, but the patients who are the most important thing in these discussions almost have no reason to get involved in this. Um, and if they were getting involved at the first thing where you're seeing that person who's had two weeks of back pain you know, and needs an MRI, You know, the insurance companies probably wouldn't have to do pre-approval if there was a conversation in the doctor's office that said, I don't really think you need an MRI. We could do it, but it's going to cost you $300. (laughs) Yeah,
0: I mean, it's so interesting. That's provocative.
2: We're all capitalists. Like, it works. Um,
0: You know, I I am a believer that there should be some skin in these games, but, um, you know, not a ton, but obviously because health is something outside our control but some skin in these games for some of these, you know, choices, as you describe, um, you know, that's always a tough one that, you know, the family that, oh, we've all been there. We all have our stories. We all have our stories where all the family that were present, we're all on the same page, but then the new family member comes in. Now there's a new conversation, you know, that I think it's real particularly hurtful when the patient is on mechanical ventilation and CVVH and that's going on for two weeks while you wait to have the decisions. Um, and it's hurtful because these are like scarce commodities too. I mean, we just, you know, can't just CVVH everybody all the time, you know, um, you know,
1: um uh, just today. Uh, and we should talk about it next week. Um, I think uh, a really interesting study, uh, JAMA published a really interesting study looking at an, an intervention to physicians, like a one page intervention to try and increase uh, goals of care discussions in, um, in critically ill people. And it was a positive trial. So. Again, I I think
0: what was the endpoint there? Pro BNP. The end point was, <laughs> no, a, no.
1: Uh, yeah, the okay. So it's not, it's what not. What is it? Yeah, hospice uh, the, referral. Uh, no. The endpoint was how many? Um, the uh, the endpoint was how many times they documented a, a goals of care discussion was had or. Oh come
0: on! <laughs> no, but okay, that's a okay. trash endpoint. Yeah. <laughs> <No, laughs> okay. Hold go on, hold on.
1: on. Yeah. Let me just let me just look at it again because patients. Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, primary outcome was the proportion of patients with electronic health record documented goals of care discussion within 30 days. Now you made fun of that, okay? I, you make fun of that. No, but,
0: I, I'm I'm only making. Go on. I, but but
1: I think a better way to a better way to handle our crisis and end of life care would be to have something on the front end rather than. Uh, rather than after someone's on mechanical ventilation. Well, okay, and that's where we and, totally and, agree. And yeah. so anything that we can do um, to improve these discussions and this sort of culture beforehand, I think is a positive. I think the the provocative uh, thought with this trial is, do we really need randomized trials to improve uh, goals of care discussion? I mean, I, I, I'm not sure that, he's in, that, that, that I'm, we need empirical data for a lot of things, but I'm not sure... You know, handing a one page. I guess it's a policy, and we should study policy, and it's positive I guess that
0: way. But my, my criticism of it is related to that, which is that if you're going to do this as a randomized study, measure something beyond the fact that the conversation was had more often. Measure family satisfaction, patient satisfaction, the duration. I think they have of, secondary
1: endpoints. Okay, yeah.
0: well, but make that primary for me, Christ's sake. Okay, make that primary. Um, you know, I want to see that. Uh, to your point, I'll be honest with you. I, I have to. I have one thought here, which is that. The, to me, one of the biggest barriers is somebody has been seeing a doctor for years or weeks or months, who has not prepared them for where this is headed. Every every doctor knew where it was headed, but this doctor that they have been seeing has not had the not even let them see the you know what might be down the road, and then you got to come in as the inpatient attending and try to clean up this mess. It's so difficult. That's the number one problem I face. I'm like, what? 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 What is your understanding of this condition? And then they say, Oh, I never knew it. You know, this was, wasn't curable. That doctor never told me that. I was like, What kind of doctor is not telling this? Yeah,
2: piece? but we know. You know, we know how complex this is. Okay. Because, yeah, you're
0: going to. You no, know, because people. Afraid.
2: A many times, right? That conversation's been had. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a painful conversation that you don't want to think about and you don't want to remember. And it's very easy once you're in the hospital to say, oh, I didn't know I had leukemia, you know? And on the other hand, studying these things is like studying psychotherapy, right? It's mm-hmm. it, it's done differently by everybody. And you almost need, you know, you don't want to have scripts, but you, you want to have like, you know, an approach to the discussion, you know, and what works. And I feel like over 30 years now, I've had these discussions in so many ways with so many different approaches. I'm not sure what the right approach is. Um, and like, you know, I'm pretty, I don't know, mindful. I think I like follow how I practice and it's, I don't know, it's so hard. Um, um, I'm, I am like such a bummer today. <laughs>
1: like, no, no, but I think, say is, um, I- I think one advantage that electrophysiologists have is we follow patients with defibrillators, right? And so we put a defibrillator in and heart failure therapy is so good because of innovations. Heart failure therapy is so good now that many times patients, you put the defibrillator in at age 70 and then, you know, they need to do a generator change at 80 and you're like, uh, now the creatinine is two and the patient's maybe got a walker and you're like, I, but what what I try and do, and this came with age, what I try and do is when we're doing clinic follow-ups before, when I know that things one or two or three years from uh, end of battery life, you know I start talking about, you know, what we're gonna do or what what the you know what the end game is. and and I try and and I the way I have the conversation is I say, we need to talk about this when you're feeling well. And a lot of times it's just a cumulative thing. It's not all in one visit. It's a little bit, it's a little bit uh, along the way, but I think it's really important. Like heart failure is a very chronic disease. And, and um, it's, I think it's really important to have these conversations along the way, but.
0: And then some people decide not to do a battery change. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah. So, so this is a really, really kind of interesting area. So when, when someone has a, the fibrillator and they're not pacing with it it's just there as a backup and you do a generator change um, you open that pocket there's a small but there's a small risk of infection and if it gets infected now you have a 10 year old lead that's scarred into the heart and then the patient's facing a very major uh, extraction procedure with a very high risk so one i think really smart option for people who are in their 80s or or have multimorbidity. Is to just not operate on the patient, and they're, they're you know their body's a little heavier because they have this device. It's uh, but you don't if you don't open the pocket, you don't uh, expose them to that risk. And so um, we don't have any empirical data about ICDs. Uh, we have empirical data with ICDs uh, initial implants, but I, I would love a randomized trial of uh, generator changes.
0: That's so interesting. Uh, because can I'm I ask sure, this? This is maybe a dumb question, but okay. So if you have the uh, the ICD in place. And if it's ever gone off, my understanding is most people know it. It feels like you got kicked by a mule.
1: Of course, and everybody okay. knows it.
0: Okay, so then I'm just thinking psychologically, I mean, it must be hard for a patient. Let's say you're 78. It's, you felt it kick twice in the last year, okay? I've heard people can even have anxiety from it. Then you're getting up to 79, then you're 80, and you're coming up for the generator change. And then you're gonna say, don't change it. But you know, you know it kicks twice a year. So you know the next time it's not gonna kick.
1: Oh no 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 that, we does would that no. you know if this was an appropriate shock for a ventricular arrhythmia and the goals of the patient were to the goals of the patient were you know you know life prolonging we would of course change it we're talking about the vast majority of defibrillators that we put in for heart failure never go off
0: So that's a problem with your fucking biomarkers you can't figure out no, no, no we, like, well, if it never goes off then what is it doing Well It's because you haven't found the right population, I would imagine. You want us to risk stratify better. Yeah, right. Don't put them in the people it never goes off in. You you got all these biomarkers, got all the BNP, you can't figure it out? No, the problem
1: is there's no reason to figure it out because... If you yeah. figured out, you would narrow the population yeah. of people who had defibrillators. So exactly. we stick with ejection fraction. It's just
0: like my hemophilia example. You see, we come full circle because it's yeah. very similar. It's very similar. The hemophilia doctors, they fucking jack up with the factor to these high levels. And you all keep putting them in all these patients, even though we know you're probably overshooting on the factor and you're probably putting it in a lot of people who will know No, never no, but it's in, different.
1: Right? It's a little different because it's stochastic. In, back in the day, back in 20 years ago, we have two randomized control trials where we have a control arm and we have a icd arm and sure, the icd sure. arm did better yeah os, so, OS
0: yes but the difference yeah, is so, in the years since you never tried to curtail the population
1: no and then even when the devices came out it was very clear that mm-hmm. one in 15 one in 16 one in 20 patients never got device therapy so there was there was intellectual interest in using uh different kinds of markers to to, to narrow the population uh to try and you know risk stratify. And now. Now we, we there's talk about risk stratifying with cardiac MRI, where patients without scar, um, you know, might do better or, or might not need it. Or, you know, they there artificial. There's a lot of ways to risk stratify, but
0: you're, I mean, about, it, you're about to say artificial intelligence, <laughs> I'm, uh, sure, uh, I'm sure I mean, who knows,
1: out. who knows. But again, all that could be empirically
0: tested. Yes, but... yes. But your point's well taken that the uh, appetite to cut your own market share is a low appetite. So let's tie it all together in the final topic, medical student selection. We've introduced all, I think, the existential challenges in medicine, that we have a lot of innovation but a lot of waste, that we have uh, uh, a lot of autonomy, but in many ways we are increasingly facing this annoying entity called the insurance company, um, and that you know we still don't have a perfect understanding of how many of our products should be given. So we got a, And now we get this new generation of kids that are supposed to come in and solve this problem so how are you gonna pick them how do you choose and I say this because recently I've been asked to write a few letters of recommendation I don't know why they cho- I don't know why they chose me maybe I gotta if I' gonna choose differently but uh, so Adam you're the closest to this how do you how do you pick these students what are you looking for in the next generation you know the students got to solve all these problems that we talked about yeah.
2: um you know we actually wrote about this years ago right In ending medical reversal when we <laughs> Said, look, we're going to start with medical students and figure out you know who's going to be do the best job here, um, and very simply for me, I mean, I think you need smart people who are willing to work very hard, um, and I like to see people who really look at medicine as a vocation, you know, a calling. It seems very, I don't know, sort of silly and old-fashioned. But, you know, there's a lot about the job, which stinks, right? And you got to be in it for the right reason. And you got to be dedicated to it. And I think that if we have those people, then we can train those people to say, like, look, this is what's right. You know, this is what's right for the patients. This is what's right for society. And they're not going to be caught up in, you know, all the other noise. Um, The difficulty of that is that, yeah, you know, we get we're lucky in medicine that it's still a desirable field. We get incredibly smart people applying. Um, but I always think we get people who are too smart, you know, who are too interested in other things and kind of get distracted by all the flashing lights and the fancy science and stuff.
0: Um, and I think
2: I think we need fewer of those people, if that's possible.
0: I um, Yeah, well, I, I agree with you. Let's talk about that. OK, what about you, John? What do you what do you like? I mean, it, I think that. Yeah.
1: Um, I just you know go back to go back to where I was I mean I I mean I barely got in I got waitlisted for medical school I barely got in um uh you know I studied hard for the MCATs uh got kind of a above average but not much above average score and you know I I took care of this really uh, many years ago I took care of this doctor and he was from the country and a country surgeon and He always told me that that B students made the best doctors. He said that the A students weren't the worst. But of course, I don't know how to measure it. I mean, on the one hand, if you do reasonably well on the MCAT, it's a marker for something, it's a marker for a skill that's kind of important, at least in the medicine that we practice. Now, maybe maybe in the era with chat gpt and with uh, smartphones you can just look up facts and maybe that's not as important but i really i i really worry about um i mean i guess i'm just i don't want to sound like an old dude but i i do worry <laughs> about you know when i get sick am i am i going to have a smart doctor uh taking care of me i don't i don't
0: you know, you both said uh, a theme that I, I think is in both of yours, which is that um, Adam's like, you know, sometimes they can be too smart to be a doctor, and your thing is sometimes the B student is the best. And I think what you're getting at is you want them to be sharp, but you need them not to be distracted. I think to Adam's point, they can't be thinking about their startup or their, you know, their their laboratory or their well, all their other jobs that they want to do, and all these the literary novel they're writing or you know the app they're making on their phone. You just have to be there present especially when you're on service um and and that's a hard trait to select for and then i have to tell you a funny story that my friend was um he did one of these um uh, sessions with the medical students this is not at this university different university and he goes and they want it's a hematology oncology interest group and he says uh the first question somebody asked him was um hey what's work-life balance like in your field and he thinks to himself uh okay you're you're not getting into here. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, if your first question is work-life balance, he's like, we know. No, come on. <laughs> this, you, no, that's not the first question. The first question is how do you help people. The second question, maybe you can get to that later. Um, so I guess that's the other thing, though. You know, every generation comes along in medicine, and they say that uh, it was harder when I did it than they, than they do it. But uh, has it gotten too soft there too? Um, you know, and it's related to that first problem. We all lament that. Um, it used to be that you could get into medical school working in the grocery store. I think that's over. I mean, I worked in a grocery store in high school. I don't see anybody applying who worked in a grocery store in high school. They all worked in a laboratory in high school. So, you know, that they don't get the chance to do real labor. And whether we, whether anyone likes it or not, medicine is ultimately, it is a service industry to some degree. You know, and you have to have the same skills that any good server in a restaurant has to have sometimes. You need some of those skill sets. Um, and if you think you're above all that, then you're going to in for a rude awakening.
1: What one of the... Oh, go ahead, Adam.
2: I was I was gonna say, it, it would be interesting if a few medical schools, and we know that this works right now, right? This, this worked with the ridiculous US News and World Report, and maybe it was for the wrong reasons, but some important medical schools saying, listen, We're not playing this game. Wouldn't it be interesting if some medical schools said, you know, listen, we believe this is important for our candidates, you know? We think these are important experiences for people to have and sort of value that on, you know, on the backside. So some of that, um, you know, whether you're working in food service or in a grocery store or an ice cream shop, you know, starts to get back into the experiences that we need. Um, We have a really interesting program, which I am incredibly peripherally involved in. So I'm not, you know, I'm not self-aggrandizing here, but it's called Clinical Excellence Scholars Track. It's a, it's a, it's a program for undergraduates, which absolutely, and and it's actually not really to make them look good for medical school. It's to help them make the right decision about going into medical school. Mm. And so instead of valuing, you know, research and grades and everything. Now, obviously, they're going to need that stuff. It really values, you know, volunteering, shadowing and kind of getting a sense of what's going on here. And we we're like perfectly happy when people like, you know, I did this program. Thank you very much. I've decided I'm not going to medical school Um, because we've sort of taught people that it's it's not all, you know, saving lives and glory. Um, There's a lot of crap to it as well. Sorry John, I cut you off. No,
1: it's okay. Uh, um mm. I had an interesting conversation with a colleague in northern Europe. I won't say what country cuz uh but anyways, it was northern Europe. You're going to talk colleagues.
2: about Denmark again and all you do is talk about Denmark. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: It might not have been Denmark. It might
0: not full. have been Denmark, sure, right? It's not Denmark. Well, okay. One of one Definitely of his
1: comments, Denmark. one of his comments was <laughs> uh that the northern European countries could learn a lot from the US. And I'm like, "What do you mean?" He goes, "Well, in 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 northern europe he says everybody kind of is okay being the same nobody wants to be any better Mm -hmm. you know it's just sort of i what i took from it is that america has a lot of you know people who are competitive and go-getters and and he and he said that some of the cultures there could use some of that so i don't think i don't think you know incentivizing that incentivizing merit incentivizing that is 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 a bad thing i just Yeah, so it was an interesting conversation because I'm biased. I think that, you know, I think that life in Northern European countries is pretty amazing. But then I heard that, and I'm like, okay, maybe, you know, maybe there's things that both countries can learn, both cultures can learn from each other.
0: I'm all for incentivizing merit. I just don't know what that's what they're picking based on. I don't know what they're picking based on. They're picking based on, but I'm interested in this. You know, all sorts of crazy You better things. learn before you write
2: these letters. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I better, I better learn better before I write the letters. I guess the um, question is, uh, you know, I gotta gotta say, among all the faculty at a medical school, do the best faculty choose who the students are? Hmm, that's an open question, I wonder. Is it really the best faculty deciding who the students are, or is it perhaps a a unique cohort of faculty who decided early on in their life that they wanted to be in the medical student choosing business they have very strong and unique faddish preferences that come and go and uh, you know and they're the ones picking and so sometimes they pick a bunch of students who you know i think that they don't it's not a great fit and um and uh and then my solution to this whole process is simple it'll solve it all modified lottery okay you know at, at a certain point you're good enough you got a certain score test score you know you can read you can write you can talk so you're certain good enough you got the hands and you got the feet you're ready to do the work you know um, and beyond that, instead of creating this incentive mill where it's about who can do the most travel in Southeast Asia or create their own clinic or whatever they want these kids to have done, you just say, this is the cutoff. If you're above this cutoff, you're in the lottery and we're just going to randomly give out the spots. And so I think it will also help the person who's like, I've done enough to be qualified. Like I've done enough shadowing. I'm in the lottery. Now I can go work in the grocery store actually, cause I need to pay the bills or, you know, I don't have to do extra there. Um, so what do you think you want to go that might
1: get you into the that might get you into the northern European problem where you're yeah. not in you know you're 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 making everybody the same and uh, I don't know I don't know oh they're
0: just not that good no, no they're fine they're good're good why, can't, yeah, they're good
1: why can't let me uh, ask you why I mean why couldn't this be empirically studied I mean why yeah couldn't, that's
0: right you randomize that's a that's also right that's the right always the right answer I think I we know we know said, that in, with, we said that in me. our book we said that in our book you have a composite of like the things that you know people think are useful traits, or you can have some. You know, one thing I really like as an endpoint is you just pick twenty doctors who are thought of as good, and then you have them score everyone like five years later on a scale, and then you you regress it on that. You you know use that as the endpoint. Uh, but Adam, what are you gonna say? Do, are the uh, best are the best are the best professors at the at the university making these calls? <laughs> <laughs> That's a silly question. Um, you know, okay, because, shrug um, it off. <laughs> right, no, really. I, I mean, you actually want
2: professionals, right, who are, who want to do this and are good at this, you know, doing the application work because you don't want to take the best doctors who are great patients and, you know, who are great with patients and make them, you know, admissions counselors. You know, that, that destroys yes. everything. Yes,
0: um, okay, you're right, is, you're right, you're right, you're right. This you're is right.
2: hard because we don't have any... <laughs> true measure of you know what is a good physician down the line um i i do sympathize with both you guys that y- you know yes we can do a really good job of choosing i think people who can get through medical school and who we like um, there are many more of those than there are people that any one medical school should accept right. and so i do think at some point you know just a random choice of look you know at pritzker we need 88 students Let's say we have to accept 150, and you know we come up with 400 who are terrific. You know, you should probably just randomly count down. You know, choose the 150 because choosing them by oh my god, look, this person left a period off a sentence. We can't choose them. Like that's crazy. Um, Vinay, your comments worry me a little bit because usually your comments worry me a lot. So it so, so
0: <laughs> so worries me a little.
2: Um, because you know, you're putting so much stake in in really objective measures. And I'm I'm as uh, I believe in objective measures, you know, pretty much, I think more than anybody in America these days. <laughs> yeah. Every time someone makes anything text text optional, I get a panic attack. Um, but there is a lot to medicine, I think, that right we that we can't measure that don't show up in grades and MCAT scores and things. Um, so I do think, Part of this has to be, you know, an interview process. Actually, getting to know these students before you randomly choose the people who are going to end up in your in your I, cohort. I
0: say okay, okay. You like the random part, but you want the interview on the the. So you screen with do. an interview. Yeah,
1: I agree with that. That's I
0: fine. Do. That's good. I like that. That's a yeah, good modification. Yeah, John.
1: That's a real problem too because you're you're interviewing kids and yeah, I was, what do, I mean? I'm foolish now, but I was really foolish. That yeah. I, what do they know? I mean, uh, so I don't, it, that's difficult. What about, what about the idea of making, uh, medical school admissions softer, but making it harder in medical school, like, you know, and, and throw, pe-
0: and throw a few out. How about yeah? that's a, that's a good idea, uh, to Adam. We well, don't throw I, I, anyone I, out.
2: I a that's not true. B, <laughs> <laughs> B I, 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 I made, made it. <laughs> To be clear, I wouldn't have accepted either of you guys <laughs> okay, medical I got school. <laughs> um, um, I, I actually really do think that it's a good idea that you basically make the first, whatever, first 18 months, first two years of medical school free um, and that you are charging for the later years in medical school to let students say, geez, this is not for me and drop out with no burden. It makes it easier for the medical school to say like, Listen, we're cutting ties with this person. We made a mistake in their um, in their admissions, um, and then let them pay when we're actually doing the clinical training, right? And that that's where everybody's really committed to each other. Students committed to the field, to the medical student school, medical school committed to these students who they're investing in. Um, I think that's a that would be a good model.
0: And you were going to say something, John? I interrupt. No, you
1: I mean I just think that I just think that this 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 the funnel is in the wrong spot. You know, it, it, it just seems to me that it ought to be harder to finish, um, and, and easier to start.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I like that. I like that. I like that. All right. Well, I think we, we successfully didn't answer any of the core questions of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't yeah, answer this the questions. Yeah, it, <laughs> it was a little Yeah. We didn't get to the the point, but, uh, but it's not because we didn't have opinions. It's because, because those opinions weren't good. No, I mean it's just yeah. These are these are tough issues. They can't be solved today. Well, you'll we'll solve them on a future episode of of sensible medicine. So stick around for that. Thanks for coming.